Matthew 5, verses 38 through 48. Jesus said, You have heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I say to you, do not resist the one who is evil. But if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. And if anyone would sue you and take your tunic, let him have your cloak as well. And if anyone forces you to go one mile, go with him two miles. Give to the one who begs from you, and do not refuse the one who would borrow from you. You have heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. For he makes his son rise on the evil and on the good and sends rain on the just and on the unjust. For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same? And if you greet only your brothers, what more are you doing than others? Do not even the Gentiles do the same. You, therefore, must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. Well, when I was growing up, um, when I was a kid, I remember the um, rise to fame of the famous boxer Muhammad Ali, who, according to the song, floated like a butterfly and stung like a bee. And uh, he was noteworthy not only because of his success in the boxing ring, but he was super conceited. And uh, he would call himself the greatest. In fact, the name of his um, uh, autobiography is The Greatest, My Own Story. Hint, if you ever write an autobiography, don't call it The Greatest. But in that book, Muhammad Ali said, I'm a fighter. I believe in the eye for an eye business. I'm no cheek turner. I got no respect for a man who won't hit back. If you kill my dog, you better hide your cat. So wrote and so lived Muhammad Ali. But the reality is, Muhammad Ali really is just like the rest of us naturally. This is the mentality of this world. Well, let's see what Jesus has to say about that mentality of, as we work our way through this passage. The, the overall theme of these verses is loving our unlovable neighbors. Loving our unlovable neighbors. And... Uh, the first part of that, verses 38 through 42, is don't retaliate. So speaking of loving our unlovable neighbors, number one, don't retaliate. So once again, Jesus said, you have heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. 
And like these other quotes that he has given on the Sermon on the Mount, um, it's, it's a mix of quotations from the Old Testament, but then ways in which that truth from God's law uh, had been twisted just a little bit in the oral tradition of the Jewish rabbis to the people. So it's the same thing here. This is a quote, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth, in Leviticus 24 and verse 20 that Brother Nate read earlier. It's also in Exodus 21 and verse 24, and Deuteronomy 19 and verse 21. An eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But a lot of people interpret that principle to be like Muhammad Ali understood it to be. He said, I believe in the eye for an eye business. In other words, if you do something to me, I'm going to do something back to you, and I'm going to make it hurt. You're going to be sorry that you did that to me in the first place. But that's not actually what God intended in that uh, principle from the Old Testament. It, it's a principle meant to ensure consistent, equitable, and proportional punishment within the legal system. Punishment that fit the crime. And by the way, in Leviticus chapter 24, uh, you might think to yourself, well, when there was somebody who used God's name as a curse word, and God commanded the Israelites to stone that guy to death, isn't that out of proportion? Well, actually, it's not. Because God's name stands for God, who is the eternal and infinite and holy and righteous God, the creator of all things, the, the self-existent and sovereign Lord. The, the reason why people aren't immediately struck down by God's judgment whenever they use his name as a curse word, reason why I wasn't struck down when I've done that, isn't because it's okay to do so. It's because God is long-suffering. So an eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth. Punishment that fits the crime. It was not meant to be used as a license for retaliation or vengeance in personal relationships. Remember, it's the justice system versus personal relationships. Vengeance is never our right. In our society, we, we would call that tit for tat. I'm not even sure what exactly those precise words mean, but I know what the concept means, tit for tat. So you do something to me, I'm going to do something back. Probably worse. That's the way people in the world think. But just to be clear, Leviticus 19 and verse 18 says, you shall not take vengeance or bear a grudge against the sons of your own people. 
So the, the law that contains this eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth principle also forbids vengeance. But some Jewish teachers had popularized uh, the idea that an eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth means get even, retaliate. Somebody does something to you, do it back and worse. And that's what Jesus addresses next in verse 39. But I say to you, Do not resist the one who is evil. But if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. If you think that one through, the physical thing that Jesus is talking about, so most people are right-handed, except for really rich pitchers in the major leagues, most people are right-handed. Most people were right-handed then. Uh, so if you go to slap somebody with your right hand, you, you're actually, if, if you go forwards, you're going to get them in the left cheek. Um, what Jesus is talking about here is a, is a backhanded slap to the right cheek. And that was a thing in the ancient world. It was a high-handed insult It wasn't a threat against a person's life. There are way more direct ways to do that. Swords and knives and stones, arrows. Just like today, there are obviously uh, more lethal ways of endangering or threatening someone's life or safety. That's actually not what Jesus is talking about here. He's talking about an insult. Something that's evil. He calls it evil. Do not resist the one who is evil. It's not nice to backhand someone across the face. It's painful, but technically speaking, it's not life-threatening. Your safety isn't at risk. And Jesus says, context. And it's important to understand that context because we don't want to uh, make Jesus say more than he's actually saying. Because there have been people throughout church history, that just as there are today, who teach passivism. That basically you should, there's no place for self-defense. There's no place for national defense. But we should not resist when somebody threatens or attacks us. And that's not what Jesus is teaching. He is teaching we should not resist personal insults. Who are we at the end of the day? But he's not saying to not protect yourself the, the sanctity of human life requires that we protect human life, our own lives and the lives of others. In the Westminster Larger Catechism, which is a really helpful resource, question 135, 
What are the duties required in the sixth commandment? The sixth commandment, you shall not murder. And uh, the writers of the Westminster Confession recognized biblically that God's law, each of God's commandments, there's, um, there's more beneath the surface. There are uh, sins forbidden and there are duties required. And so they, they say, I'll read the first half of their long answer, but they wrote, the duties required in the sixth commandment are all careful studies and lawful endeavors to preserve the life of ourselves and others by resisting all thoughts and purposes, subduing all passions and avoiding all occasions, temptations and practices which tend to the unjust taking away the life of any by just defense thereof against violence, dot, 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 dot. And it continues on. And so, if, if somebody's got a knife and you have the wherewithal to protect yourself from that knife attack or gun attack or baseball attack or you've got your wife with you or your kids with you or, sad to say, you're in church and some evil person person comes in from off the street to hurt people. Jesus does not require us to just lay down and get killed or hurt and allow other people to be hurt or killed. That, that is not the point. So what's Jesus talking about? Well, Craig Keener, writing in the IVB, IVP Bible Commentary, is helpful here. The blow on the right cheek was the most grievous insult possible in the ancient world, apart from inflicting serious physical harm. And in many cultures was listed alongside the eye for an eye laws. Both Jewish and Roman law permitted prosecution for this offense. So Jesus calls his followers like us, to endure personal insults, to have thick skin, to not be easily provoked, to not strike back in retaliation. And then he goes on in verse 4. This Christ-like humility and uh, peacemaking attitude continues. Verse 40. And if anyone would sue you and take your tunic, so first century Palestine, the, the garment that uh, people would wear closest to their skin, that was the tunic. And then their outer garment was their cloak. If anyone would sue you and take your tunic, uh, so maybe in our culture we would say your shirt and your coat. Jesus says, let him have your cloak as well. 
And it's the same idea here. Jesus is not absolutely and universally forbidding all lawsuits because um, we are supposed to be interested in justice, even justice for ourselves. And there, there are times when justice requires that you seek help, you seek remedy through the legal system. That's its, that's its purpose. That was its purpose under the old covenant system, and that's the purpose for the legal system in our day and age, in our culture. And that's part of the reason, by the way, uh, why God has entrusted the civil magistrate with the power of the sword to enforce justice, albeit imperfectly. But what Jesus is after here is this protective attitude against our rights. That's what he's touching. That's what he's pointing out. Some people have no tolerance for having their rights infringed, for having people do wrong to them, any wrong whatsoever in their minds. They're going to sue you. They're going to do something to you because it's just not right. And while, while there's a place for seeking justice, Jesus teaches us, you know, just relax a little bit and your own estimation of yourself, as John the Baptist would say, Christ must increase in our hearts and we must decrease. And don't be so jealous. Don't be so clingy to your rights. Somebody wants to take away your tunic in a lawsuit, let them. Somebody wants to rob you and take the $50 out of your wallet or 20 or one or let them. Don't get too bent out of shape about it. Sure, report it to the police in that latter case because Chances are, if you got robbed, somebody else is going to get robbed too. But don't lose your cool over losing your rights. Because as Christ followers, we've actually given up our rights to King Jesus. And we're now living in a world that is hostile against our king and his kingdom and their subjects. And often, justice is not done. But Jesus continues to talk about radical uh, peacemaking, verse 41, and then generosity in verse 42. So verse 41, And if anyone forces you to go one mile, go with him two miles. And here, Jesus seems to be alluding to a Roman law that allowed for a Roman soldier to compel a civilian to carry a burden for up to one mile. And that was probably the legal basis for Simon the Cyrenian. Remember him? 
the gentlemen who uh, carry Jesus' cross for a distance in Matthew chapter 27. That was the legal basis for him to be compelled to do that. And what's Jesus' instruction here? Go with him two miles. Don't get too bent out of shape because the Roman Empire is violating your individual rights. They are. So what? Be a peacemaker. Blessed are the peacemakers. Do good to all men. Carry that burden an extra mile. That's what Jesus says. It's hard, isn't it? Radical generosity in verse 42. Give to the one who begs from you and do not refuse the one who would borrow from you. And I'll qualify that again by saying that that doesn't mean that there should be no limits on our generosity. We're not supposed to be gullible, for example. Proverbs 14 and verse 15, the simple believes everything, but the prudent gives thought to his steps. We're not supposed to enable bad behavior. 2 Thessalonians 3.10, if a man will not work, neither shall he eat. And we should consider if we can afford it. 1 Timothy 5.8, if a man provides not for his own household, he's worse than an unbeliever. I remember when we were living in Riverside and um, somebody approached my wife, Denise. Uh, I didn't happen to be there. I don't know where I was. But uh, this individual asked Denise for money and she uh, emptied out her wallet and her wallet consisted of a bunch of change. And the, the, guy, the guy looks at what Denise said. I mean, she gave, gave him all that she had. I guess she should have said, do you take MasterCard? But he looks at this change in his hand and he, and he says, what am I supposed to do with that? <laughs> he was upset because that's all that she gave him. And that's the reality, isn't it? That a lot of people do have an entitlement mentality. But be that as it may, we're still supposed to be radical givers, radically generous. And within biblical bounds, for sure, but we need to be willing to give. Give to the one who begs from you and do not refuse the one who would borrow from you. So, do not retaliate. The second part of this passage is really hard. You thought the first paragraph was hard? This one's really hard. This really cuts against the grain of our flesh. So love your enemies. 
you have heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor. And it does say that in the Old Testament. Leviticus 19 and verse 18, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. No, Jesus did not make that up. But he did point out the importance of it. The, the, uh, one of the two great commandments. You have heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. Now, the Old Testament doesn't say that. Um, there are psalms, passages in the psalms, uh, uh, imprecatory prayers in which um, God's wrath is being prayed down on God's enemies. But that's still tied up with the holiness of God and his cause and his kingdom. It's still not because I personally hate you and you're my enemy. The Old Testament does not say hate your enemy. This is what Jewish oral tradition had devolved to. So Jesus sets the record straight. But I say to you, love your enemies. So love your neighbor. Your enemy is your neighbor. Love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. That's hard. So that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. This is what God does. God is kind to his enemies. God shows love to his enemies. God does good things for his enemies. In what ways? For he makes his son rise on the evil and on the good and sends rain on the just and on the unjust. And we got a taste of that last night, didn't we? Praise the Lord. That rain was a token of God's goodness and it fell on everyone in Ridgecrest and brings goodness and refreshment to everyone in goodness uh, in Ridgecrest. Those who love God and those who don't. The wicked and the good. And Jesus continues in verse 46, for if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same? And remember, uh, in the Jewish mind in the first century, tax collectors were the evil of the evil. They had sold out their Jewish brethren and um, taken the side of the Roman Empire in terms of collecting taxes. And then most of them were unscrupulous. And so a tax collector, it was sort of like a byword, a, um, a, a tag for an evil, disgusting person who definitely was not righteous, not good, 
but evil. Definitely was an enemy of God. Tax collector. Well, here's God sending his sunshine and the rain on even tax collectors. And speaking of tax collectors, those guys who you think are so evil, even they know how to love people who love them. Christ calls us to a higher standard. Not the standard of the world, not the standard of Muhammad Ali, but the standard of God himself. Continuing on in verse 47, and if you greet only your brothers, what more are you doing than others? Do not even the Gentiles do the same. Those who are outside of the covenant community. It's just normal, commonsensical human decency to do that. But God calls us to a higher and deeper righteousness, to love our enemies, to pray for them. The Apostle Paul elaborated on this in Romans chapter 12. Let's look there. Romans chapter 12. Starting in verse 14. You can sure hear Jesus' words on the Sermon on the Mount here. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse them. It's easy to read that, isn't it? But it's really challenging. If someone persecutes you, backhands you across the face, causes pain, to you because of your religious beliefs. That's what persecution is. is. Isn't it our reflex to say, you, bless, do not curse. Skipping down to verse 17. Repay no one evil for evil but give thought to do what is honorable in the sight of all. If possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. Beloved, never avenge yourselves. So even in self-defense, by the way, self-defense must always be to defend yourself and, and others Never for vengeance. Never, Paul says, avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God. For it is written, vengeance is mine. I will repay, says the Lord. It's not up to us to uh, 
take vengeance on those who hurt us, we're all going to appear before the judgment seat of Christ someday. It's appointed for men to die once, and after this comes judgment. And first of all, we should desire that those who make us suffer would be saved and come to know the mercy of God. Like, by the way, happened in the case of Paul, who used to persecute Christians. But if they're not ever saved, and they appear before God in their unconverted state, justice will be done. Maybe not in this life, but justice will ultimately be done. And God calls us to trust him for that, not to take things into our own hands. And then uh, continuing on, to the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. So love your enemy, pray for them. For by so doing, you will heap burning coals on his head. And by the way, that's not a backdoor pseudo-spiritual way of getting vengeance against your enemy. But it's a way of uh, bringing good into the heart of your enemy so that perhaps conviction from the Holy Spirit will come. That, that's the idea. And then Paul concludes in verse 21, do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. So the Pauline version of this passage that we're looking at. But then that raises a question, to what extent? It's a pretty high standard. All of this that we've been seeing goes against our natural, fallen, self-centered nature. It's against everything we're going to see on TV, even the news. But to what extent? Verse 48. You therefore must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. But wait a minute. Nobody's perfect. To err is human. Yeah. That doesn't change God's standard. Do you know what God's standard is? Perfection. Be holy, even as I am holy. God said to the Israelites in the Old Testament, and he says to Christians in the New Testament, First uh, Peter chapter 1 and verse 15, God has revealed his law to us, his standard of right and wrong. It's been written on our hearts by virtue of our being image bearers of his. It's been uh, defaced. It's been uh, obscured because of sin, but it is still there. And God holds us to that 
revelation of his moral law. And what does he require of us regarding his law? We are obligated, this is the words of the 1689 London Baptist Confession and other, other historical confessions. We are obligated to personal, total, exact, and perpetual obedience. And by the way, not just to those who are lovable, but to the unlovable as well. You must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. Well, if that's true, and it is, that this is God's standard and that no fallen human being can actually live up to that standard and that God's standard doesn't change, then what hope is there for sinners like us? What hope is there for me? What hope is there for you? Well, that's the last point. What did Jesus do? Jesus, on the other hand, is perfect. He has always been holy, even as God is holy. He was tempted in all points, even as we are, yet without sin. He knew no sin. When he was on this earth, he always loved his unlovable neighbors. And I want to show you an example of what that looked like. If you look in 1 Peter chapter 2, Peter gives his testimony about the perfection of Jesus. 1 Peter chapter 2. Uh, second half of verse 20, Peter says, But if when you do good and suffer for it, you endure, this is a gracious thing in the sight of God. Remember, we, we need to be willing to suffer. We need to be willing to be, have our rights infringed on and not get bent out of shape. We're willing to do that for the kingdom, for God. It is a gracious thing in the sight of God. For, in verse 21, Peter says, to this you have been called to suffer unjustly and not lose your mind about it. Because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in his steps. Well, what did that example look like? Verse 22. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, insulted, mocked, blasphemed, slandered, and he was. He did not revile in return. 
when he suffered, and he suffered more than any other man ever, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. So much so that when Jesus was hanging on the cross and he was nearing death through the pain and exhaustion of that method of torture, he actually prayed for his executioners, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. That's what Jesus did. Why did he do that? Verse 24. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed. Jesus acted that way. Ultimately, for our salvation. He suffered that way. He loved his enemies, even prayed for them, that he might save them. And guess what? We're part of that. The Bible tells us that God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, and later on in that same passage, that's Romans 5.8, we were God's enemies. Even while we were still sinners, even while we were God's enemies, Christ died for us. So we were Christ's enemies as well. And yet... He died for us. That's what Jesus did. And so when we read what we read in Matthew chapter 5, verses 38 through 48, and we think about ourselves and how we measure up, it's bad news, isn't it? Bad news. It's so true to say that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. All we like sheep have gone astray. We've turned everyone to his own way. Bad, bad news all day long when we look at ourselves. But it's good news when it comes to what Jesus has done. His teachings show us how we ought to live, that's true. But at the same time, his teachings show us that we all need a savior. We're all sinners. There's no hope for us if left to ourselves. But that's precisely why Jesus came into this world. He came to redeem sinful, selfish angry, short-sighted, vengeance-seeking, 
retaliating hell-deserving sinners like us. What a demonstration of love. And in love, he continues to call sinners like that to come to him and cast themselves at his feet and beg him for his mercy even today. And if you do that, he will save you. You will enjoy his love like no love that you've ever experienced now and on through eternity. He truly is the Lord, our righteousness. 